Welcome back to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces shaping investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. 74% of chief financial officers expect some portion of their workforce to remain virtual forever. Stay-at-home orders have led to a 60% increase in content consumption on video and audio streaming platforms, and there's been a 35% surge in video game sales over the past few months. These are just a few of the ways the world has changed since the coronavirus pandemic first started, and they can all be encompassed by megatrends, the long-term forces shaping society. Today, Jeff Spiegel, U.S. Head of Megatrends and International ETFs, will walk us through a few of the themes that he's thinking about, including virtual work, the future of innovation, technology, and healthcare. Jeff, thank you for joining us today on The Bid. Thanks for having me back, Oscar. And in fact, you are coming back. We had you back on in April to talk about the coronavirus and how it has accelerated the five megatrends that we've been watching. And just as a reminder, those five megatrends are technological breakthrough, demographics and social change, rapid urbanization, climate change, and emerging global wealth. Now, I guess my question is, are we continuing to see these trends accelerate over the past few months? In some ways, April feels like a lifetime ago. Yet in others, and this certainly applies to megatrends, 2020 has actually propelled the future to come at us faster than ever. So more directly to your question, I'll quickly click through those five megatrends you listed and give you a sense of some of those acceleration highlights. In technological breakthroughs, greater connectivity is really leading to huge investments in big data, in networks, in cybersecurity. While at the same time, deglobalization, driven by the pandemic, is driving greater focus in areas like robotics and automation. In demographics, genomics and immunology were major focuses of our last discussion and how they're enabling us to fight back against COVID because they're the disciplines at the forefront of the vaccines and the therapeutics that are providing us hope. Rapid urbanization and climate change, I'll put together here, you know, we're seeing hundreds of billions and actually expect trillions of dollars of investments in these two areas in the near term in traditional infrastructure and clean energy, as governments use stimulus, specifically in these spaces, to get people back to work. Then in emerging global wealth, we're already seeing countries like China post-rebounding spending and manufacturing at a far faster rate than the rest of the world, propelled by the rise of the middle-class consumer in that and similar countries. But finally, the most powerful themes actually coexist at the intersection of multiple megatrends. And so at the intersection of tech and demographics, we're experiencing this amazingly rapid expansion of virtualization that's fundamentally changing the way we work and the way we live. So you've touched on this a little bit, but as you think about these broader megatrends, what are some more of these specific themes within that that you're focused on in light of all of these societal shifts that you've started to mention? Yeah, so I'll go further on that tech demographic intersection that's driving towards more virtual work and virtual living. A rise in connectivity was already a fast-moving megatrend long before the pandemic. In fact, there were about 30 billion internet-connected devices at the start of this year, and that was set to rise to 75 billion by 2025. Then the pandemic forced an even more rapid acceleration. Countless activities done in person every day by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, had to be replaced in short order by virtual solutions. So 
And considering that, we really think about it as two distinct categories that have taken off, virtual work and virtual life. What really has to be emphasized here, though, is that this virtualization was well underway within the tech and demographics megatrends before the pandemic. It just managed to leapfrog much of the early adoption phase, given our sudden need to go virtual in the crisis. It's very true. I think you said something before about the future kind of coming at us. I don't know about you. I used to work from home maybe once or twice a month, and obviously now it's a daily occurrence for me. So speaking of that, we've heard that companies are letting their employees work from home through the end of the year, and in some cases, actually even into next summer. So how do you see the nature of work changing on a go-forward basis? So we think different companies are going to take different approaches to bringing workers back. That's primarily because there's no real playbook or even any consensus regarding the course of the virus. And it differs profession to profession, geography to geography, how safe it is to come back. We do know that workers will eventually be able to return to offices safely, whether that's in six months, 12 months, 18 months. The big question is what happens then? And to that point, 74% of CFOs expect to offer more virtual work forever, long after the pandemic. Many of them, because they see ways to maintain productivity, reduce costs, and meet employee demand. That's been one of the important lessons of this work-from-home experiment forced by the crisis. At the same time, a similar number, 72% of workers, actually want the flexibility to work two or more days from home long-term. In that case, so they can avoid a grueling commute, so they can have more flexibility in where they live, and so they can have a greater ability to manage more personal needs, like childcare. Now, companies ranging from tech firms like Twitter to insurance providers like Nationwide have actually announced that they are going 100% fully virtual for the long term. As a counterpoint, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, has been really vocal in saying there's no way he'll offer his teams more remote work once return is safe because he worries that at Netflix, he would be stifling creativity. Now, those are the extremes, but most of us will not be 100% virtual or 100% in person going forward. And you know, BlackRock actually surveyed us and asked what percentage of the time we'd all like to work from home post-pandemic. I have to admit, in contrast to my prediction a moment ago, I personally said I'd like to work from home 100% of the time. Oscar, I know you're the one asking the questions today, but I'm curious if you can share where you cast your vote. I don't remember exactly how I answered it, but I will tell you, I did not answer 100% of the time that I want to work from home. I like variety. I don't mind a commute. Perhaps mine is a little less grueling than folks who might live out deep in the suburbs. I live pretty close to New York City, but I tend to think that there are some benefits to being in the office and being around your colleagues. So obviously, work from home is one of these things that has changed in the course of our lives over the last few months. But there's a lot of other things that have been brought into our home. It seems like exercise classes have been brought into living rooms and people are watching friends get married over virtual wedding ceremonies. What are some of the other areas besides just working from home where you've seen technology really break through? So in virtual life, we're seeing the end game for some megatrends that have been running for a while. And we're also seeing a massive leap forward for those that had just started emerging. And just like you and I were talking about, right, with different views on how frequently we want to go to work, different CEOs have different perspectives on this. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution going forward. So to some of those endgame examples, those holdouts, we all know some of them, who never had an Amazon Prime account or never had a Netflix account, well, the vast majority of them during this pandemic have finally signed up. Amazingly, Disney Plus achieved 50 million users 
only months after launch. It took Facebook years to accomplish a number like that. At the same time, video game sales saw that 35% surge and 20% of romantic couples are now meeting online, including, by the way, and as an aside, yours truly and the love of my life. Actually, to be precise, she and I met in nursery school, went our separate ways at the age of six, and then actually found each other again 30 years later on Hinge. But we'll save the details of that story maybe for another bit, Oscar. To be fair, most of us had experienced e-commerce, streaming, video games, and I had certainly experienced online dating changing my life. And many of us had embraced these areas pre-crisis. Newer areas of virtualization, though, are really leaping forward from those early innings. Areas like teleeducation and telemedicine that most of us really hadn't tried previously. Now, yes, our kids will go back to school. That's a boon for the many of us out there tired of having every other Zoom call abruptly interrupted by our little guys and gals. But teleeducation will nonetheless live on. In fact, global ed tech spending is expected to grow about 18 times through 2025. Why? Because recorded lectures allow students to learn at their own pace. Because a limited number can fit in a room to hear from the world's preeminent professor of nuclear physics, but an infinite number can hear from her online. At the lows of pandemic life, I actually took a free Yale University course on happiness, and it had an amazing impact on me. Another game changer was the speed with which health insurance companies abruptly changed policies to allow for telemedicine in the face of the pandemic, which is, by the way, impressive in that industry's speed to respond. And yes, many types of doctor's visits will continue to require in-person examinations, but many won't. Again, I'll share a personal anecdote, and I hope that the aforementioned love of my life doesn't mind that I keep referencing her today. But Kim is a psychiatrist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. At the height of the pandemic, she was still going in every day to take care of the inpatient unit she manages. But her private patients obviously weren't going to come in and see her live at the hospital. So they moved to telepsych. Nine months later, not one of them wants to go back to in-person sessions. And as a clinician, she's actually been shocked to find that she's just as effective in that virtual environment. Jeff, I actually think that it's not just another podcast. We might have a feature film that we need to make about you and Kim and the 30 years that it took for you to reunite. Let me know when we're filming the movie. I'm all in. I'll check with Kim to see if she's down. Certainly, a lot of the things you mentioned resonate with me in terms of, yes, I signed up for a Disney Plus account. My nine-year-old daughter now is reciting lines from Hamilton. We're definitely experiencing the education at home through Zoom. So I have to imagine a lot of people are relating to this. And I also have to note, Hamilton has been stuck in my head for months since Disney Plus put it online, which is certainly a good thing, although I have to resist sort of singing or humming it while I'm on calls with clients. And then you touched on healthcare and the advancements that we're seeing there. There's obviously a race towards a vaccine that continues. What other areas of development are we seeing in the healthcare space? So that's going to come back to genomics and immunology again. And we discussed it at length back in April, the extent to which RNA vaccines, the domain of genomics and antibody replication therapies, the domain of immunology, are really at the forefront of fighting back against this virus. And I actually think the bigger point here is the long-term impact of the tremendous amounts of research and development that are being marshaled against COVID. We're talking about a Manhattan Project level of focus and resources. RNA vaccines and antibody replication therapies have never actually been applied to any disease before. 
They're massive new breakthroughs. So while it's hard to say exactly which vaccine or therapeutic will be approved first, or just how effective each one will be, or which company is going to get there first, we can say with a pretty good level of confidence that our understanding of game-changing treatments has expanded rapidly. And when COVID is thankfully behind us, we'll turn our research and development to using these new wartime advances in genomics and immunology to fight countless diseases that have vexed us in the past or that we may come to face in the future. Jeff, earlier you asked me about my intention about working from home, and I mentioned that I live close to New York. My commute's not so bad, so going back to the office doesn't seem so scary. But there has been a lot of discussion around this trend of rapid urbanization and whether COVID-19 will reverse it, given that people have the fear of the ongoing pandemic and the longer-term increases in the ability to remote work. I mean, have we updated our rapid urbanization expectations as a result? Oscar, I get this question more than almost any other lately. So recall, rapid urbanization is about the rise of cities in emerging markets and the revitalization of urban infrastructure in developed markets, a pairing that we see together driving $100 trillion of infrastructure spending over the next 20 years. So yes, many have lamented the death of rapid urbanization, but the first rebuttal to this concern is that 70% of that $100 trillion of incoming infrastructure spending will be sourced in emerging markets. Think about why people move to cities in emerging market countries. They make the rural to urban shift in search of basic education basic healthcare, non-remote work, and even clean water. And often to cities where disease is already a longstanding concern. So we see that 70% preponderance of this really important megatrend, rapid urbanization, largely unaffected. But clearly the source of this potential reversal is more focused on the other 30%, the developed markets component. In our earlier discussion of remote work, we landed on the view that most office jobs will require less time in the office, but not no time in the office. And different employees are going to have different views, as you and I do, of how much we want to be there. And that's why in major metro areas like San Francisco or New York, we've seen a huge run-up in suburban property markets and an accompanying decline in city rents. But San Franciscans and New Yorkers aren't, by and large, moving out of their metro areas because they will still need some proximity to offices and certainly to friends and family and culture and the other longstanding draws of cities. So the urbanization trend and the need to revitalize urban infrastructure in developed markets doesn't decline at the metropolitan area level. The burden and therefore the investment just ends up redistributed away from downtown centers to broader metropolitan areas that we expect to continue to grow. And it's a good point. When we talk about rapid urbanization, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. So it's important to distinguish between how this trend is developing in the emerging markets versus the more developed markets. A lot of the themes we talked about today get into pretty specific areas, such as innovation in healthcare or working from home. So how does an investor go about taking advantage of investing in these megatrends? Well, the key with these themes across today's discussions and really all megatrend investing is to focus on the long term and to focus on diversification. This acceleration of a number of the megatrends hasn't changed that. But at the end of the day, we still see too many investors seeking to access megatrends by just picking a single stock winner or trying to make a quick trade. 
the problem there is if you get it right, you can certainly achieve returns that knock it out of the park. But if you get it wrong, you could lose it all. We posit three mega rules that we use to build diversified portfolios for accessing mega trends. Now, the first is to wait for tomorrow, not W-A-I-T, but W-E-I-G-H-T. You know, only one of the five largest companies in the S&P 500 from back in 2000 is actually still in the top five today. The others were replaced by firms like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple that rode megatrend themes over the last 20 years, like social media, e-commerce, and smartphones, to become the megacap leaders of today. We have to think about waiting towards small and mid-cap players who have the potential to ride a new set of megatrends, the next 20 years of megatrends, to become the megacap leaders of tomorrow. The second is to connect the value chain. Think about a trend like virtualization, which we spent a good bit of time on today. That's an entire ecosystem of opportunities. It's not just one company. It's not even one type of company. Firms set to benefit range from those that build the digital infrastructure, the physical infrastructure that keeps us connected, to those building the software that we connect through, the cybersecurity that keeps our network safe, and the services, be they online dating, telemedicine, streaming, or video games, that we want to connect to. So that second rule, connect the value chain. And the third is to think beyond borders. Yes, the U.S. is the world's largest economy, and it's the number one innovator, and we don't expect either of those facts to change anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that megatrend investing should be U.S. only. In fact, many opportunities, and connectivity is a great example, show more promise beyond our borders. India has more than two times the number of people online as the U.S. today, 300 million versus about 600 million. But more startling, is that while we have only about 30 million people here who have yet to access the internet, India has over 600 million people still offline. Talk about untapped virtualization potential. So we see these rules applying to all the exciting themes we discussed today, from virtual work and life, to big data, to robotics and cybersecurity, to global infrastructure, and to clean energy. I think when we spoke in April, I might have said this to you as well, but you are a treasure trove of fun facts. Any final thoughts for today, Jeff? Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that. In closing, the world will be different after COVID-19. As investors seek to rebalance, rebuild, and reimagine investment allocations for that future, megatrends have a huge role to play in delivering on that future to our portfolios. Well, it's a positive message. We need more of that in 2020. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you. Pleasure as always, Oscar. I hope you'll invite me back for a third go in 2021. And also on the hopeful note that by then, we and our listeners will find ourselves in a happier and a healthier world. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. 
This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.